This is IAQ Radio, Indoor Air Quality Radio, the voice of the indoor air quality industry, with your hosts, Radio Joe Hughes and the Z-Man, Cliff Zlotnick. And now, Radio Joe Hughes. Good day, wherever you're listening from, and welcome. It's episode 488 of IAQ Radio, and it's Friday, December 15th, 2017. I got the 5x5 from Victor, Virginia Vic, so we must be coming in loud and clear. This week, we welcome Ken Larson and Mickey Lee. We're going to talk a little bit about uh, the hurricane update from uh, Florida and the southwest or southeast coast, I guess, and uh, a little on writing protocols for water damage and mold remediation projects. Before we do, let's thank our marquee sponsors. IAQ Radio marquee sponsors are John Don Products, where restoration and abatement contractors shop. Visit them at johndon.com. That's J-O-N-D-O-N.com. Healthy Indoor Magazine, a free online digital magazine for industry professionals and consumers. Subscriptions are available at iaq.net. Particles Plus, engineers and manufacturers feature rich particle counters, air quality monitoring, instrumentation, and vacuum pump technology. ParticlesPlus.com. Count on us. Please be sure to thank our sponsors for their support of IAQ Radio when you inquire about their services or products. Last but not least, of course, please visit the IAQ Training Institute website for the most current dates for the training you trust at iaqtraining.com. And, of course, we have those continuing education credits available. Just email me at joe.hughes at iaqtraining.com or go, go to the IAQ Radio website. And uh, where it says continuing ed, you can do them online now. All right, let's turn it over to the Z-Man for today's IAQ Radio trivia question. And now you can win a cool prize. It's time for the IAQ Radio trivia question. Be the first to correctly answer. Simply email your answer to czlotnick at cs.com. Or if listening live, just text your answer from your computer. And now, here's the Z-Man with this week's IAQ Radio trivia question. Hello, everyone. Congratulations to Doug Conan, Aerotech Environmental, Dayton, Ohio, for being first to identify Mark David Chapman as being notorious for his shooting John Lennon to death on December 8, 1980. The IQ Radio trivia question for today, Friday, December 15, 2017, has been sponsored by Ideas, the solution chemistry company, creating unique solutions to odor removal surface cleaning, and decontamination problems. Here is today's trivia question. Where and what was the origin of Hurricane Irma? Back to you, Joe. Okay, thank you, Cliff. And uh, Cliff, why don't you go ahead and do the first bio for today? Okay, thanks, Joe. Ken Larson's been in the restoration industry since 1978. He holds RIA, ACAC, and IICRC advanced designations and teaching certifications. His career includes 18 years as an independent property restoration contractor, consultant to restorative drying 
during catastrophes and large loss drawing situations, expert witness, director of education for North America's largest disaster restoration contracting organization, and now the author of one of the industry's leading technical resource books on the subject of structural restorative drawing called Leadership in Restorative Drawing. He does tremendous volunteer work for RAA, for IICRC, on standards and committees, and really excited about having Ken today. All right, and then we've also got Mickey Lee. Mickey is currently a private consultant. He provides consulting, training, research, and writing services in the fields of property damage restoration, psychrometrics, drying science, mold remediation, and structural drying. Uh, he retired from Munters Corporation in 2011 after serving in various roles for over 20 years. Mickey's also been very active in the standard writing groups at the IICRC and also in uh, developing the training program for the Commercial Drying Specialist Certification. We look forward to having both gentlemen back on the show today. All right, let's start it off. Cliff, why don't you go ahead and start it off? Okay. All right, guys. First of all, what cities have you been working in since the hurricanes? Uh, yeah, I've been doing most of my work, uh, uh, Cliff, is in uh, in Houston, and uh, so uh, and some in South Florida. I haven't been traveling to South Florida uh, on this one. I have gone to Houston a couple of a few times, but uh, I'm doing quite a bit of phone consulting uh, in the uh, for on Florida uh, projects, though. Mickey, what, how are things coming along in Houston? You know what, uh, Joe? It's been uh, it's been good. The, uh, I think a, I think a lot of things are really getting much much better. But there's a lot of lingering issues that they have there. Uh, there is a a, a dearth of uh, good contractors, uh, and so there's a lot of uh, reconstruction, a lot of projects that are going begging for for really good uh, good people. Uh, and um, but uh, in most cases, I mean, they've they've gone a long way to, to recovering. But this thing was really a, uh, such a uh, widespread uh, area uh, in that southeast Texas area. So it was uh, it's it's still going to be it's going to be a long time recovering completely. I can imagine they had there. You know, there was a little bit of a shortage of construction laborers, um, carpenters, etc. Before all this came about, and now you've got tons of reconstruction work that needs done uh let's go over to ken ken you've been you've just been working your rear end off down there on the florida coast as i understand it when i want you update listeners on how things look in florida and first welcome to the show by the way both of you well thank you uh joe I, and actually before i start i want to say it's just a real pleasure to be able to be on this radio show with uh someone like mickey lee um is just a, a real good guy um, for me, uh, my, uh, I went down to Harvey and worked in Houston, but it didn't really pan out to be, at least in my circle, it didn't pan out to have the opportunity that Irma brought. Um, you know, I did do a few schools down in, uh, uh, the Houston area, but, uh, after, you know, doing some legwork, I decided that Irma was the better opportunity. So I have just been hammered with every corner of Florida as a result of, of Irma. And, uh, um, I mean, as, as I'm speaking to you right now, I'm sitting in my car down in uh, the Naples area um, dealing with uh, some condos that are uh, requiring some inspections. And, uh, yeah, just really busy on the, the Irma front. Well, let's throw this one out. 
Um, we'll start with you, Ken. Has there any, been anything different, unique, maybe even a little unusual about this year's hurricane catastrophes compared to prior years when you've uh, you've both been around quite a while, when you've both been involved in other responses similar to this? Ken, let's start with you. Well, for me, it's okay. Yeah, sure. Uh, for me, the the big change uh, this year that I noticed over um, the other hurricanes that I've uh, been involved in was uh, what I think is a, a development of uh, resulting from how the insurance uh, carriers respond to the mitigation contractors' um, work after the work has been done. So, uh, you know, in the case of a hurricane, it can be argued that the water is Category 3 as uh, indicated or as suggested a Category 3 water loss might be in the S-500. I mean, it does say that an example would be hurricanes or storm-related water. Uh, on the other hand, it can also be argued that in some cases it is rainwater, distilled water. You can drink that. And there is arguments out there saying that it's, it may start as, you know, fresh water, but by the time it gets into the building, it can change category. And so frequently these contractors get into debates with the insurer after the job is done as to which category it fell into. And um, I guess the, the point finally was realized by contractors that we should really define what category that water is in that building, in that city, at that time, and do that before any work is done. And so for me, the big change is the quantity of contractors who are saying, thank you, Mr. Property Owner, for signing my agreement. We're ready to go as soon as we have a protocol. And so the owner, you know, kind of blinks a few times and says, well, what do you mean? Can't you make your own protocol? The contractor says there's too many arguments at the end of the job, so therefore we're going to resolve this dispute before we begin. Let's find out what category it is. Let's get a protocol in place. Then we can do the work, and the consultant can help us defend the decision to declare it to be a category whatever it is and um it's uh this has just resulted in a huge amount of work for me and the contractors uh, have less to worry about um when it comes time to submit their invoice and uh and scope of work so you're working as a, what a, go ahead cliff no i i had a follow-up uh ken how are you Without a water sample, or are you getting a water sample, how are you able to determine whether this is rainwater or whether this is Category 3? Well, that, that really is a, a, an important question because so many contractors in the past have merely looked at the source and made the call strictly on the source. Well, the source of the water is an important part of that determination, but there's other things to be considered. Uh, and I'll give some examples of them. Um, some of the examples could be the time that the water has resided in the building or that it's, uh, how long it's been sitting there. The other thing is the temperature. The warmer the temperature, the more it is like an incubator. So temperature matters. Uh, we're not talking of the air. We're talking of the surfaces in the building and the fluid in itself. Um, there's also the uh, subject of the presence of odors. And so we document the presence of odors as uh, observed by the many people that might be in the building. We document debris that might be in that uh, water that was carried in with that water. We also um, uh, 
use uh, adenosine triphosphate or ATP meters to determine biological load. And I'm very careful that the way I phrase that, I'm not speaking about bacteria only or mold only. We're talking about biological load because that has something to do that can help us in creating as, as one component of the final determination of uh, the category of water. And I just got to go on record as saying this. ATP is not the sole measure of category. You've got to consider everything else in conjunction with that technology. Okay. And, and Ken, so I just want to clarify, you're acting as an IEP as defined in the IICRC standard, an indoor environmental professional. And, and real quick, are you, your circle of friends and colleagues that do the same kind of work, are they all very busy as well? Well, some of them are and some of them aren't. Uh, um, you may have heard of the expression or the, the, uh, the title called a registered third-party evaluator, an RTPE. Yes. And we might talk about that if we have time today. But the, the, the thing is about the RTPE is that those who have um, earned their place on that registry, they are defining their own scope of services uh, that they choose to perform under that uh, their skill set. So some of us choose to be identified as an IEP. Others will choose to be an expert witness. Others will choose to be something else, um, a consultant, uh, maybe helping in the uh, drafting of the scope of work on a, a large loss, uh, maybe even a, a guide to the restore, an independent guide to the restore and help them uh, with their decision-making process. So it's not a particular thing that this RTPE is, but it is certainly an expert that has been identified and found to be on that registry. Okay. Cliff, you have a follow-up? Yeah, I, I did, Ken. Back, back to the water situation. Uh, you discussed um, time, how long it's been there, and the temperatures, and the presence of odors, and the presence of debris, and ATP, and, and so on and so forth. I guess what my question is, you know, are you finding different categories of water? Um, yes, actually, and that's, that's such a, I've got to tell you, that was a fascinating discovery for my, myself. I, I was one of those guys, I'm just going to confess it, I was one of those guys that always believed that hurricane water is category three, or, and it was always that. And um, when I started doing these inspections and, you know, investigating the quality of the water, I found that, I, that in some cases the, the water that came from the hurricane was in fact Category 1. Now, not all cases, but in some cases it existed. So, you know, it, I guess with the, the swirling motion and the, the, the violent nature of the, the hurricane and the way the water comes into the building... Portions of it could be, um, you know, fresh water, right, straight from the cloud. In other cases, it picks up water from the, you know, the Gulf of Mexico and off the surface of the ground and brings in some debris. And then even on the, um, the, the ground level of some of these buildings, you know, it's partially kind of falls into the category of almost storm surge. Mm -hmm. And so that brings with it all kinds of debris, and it can be grossly contaminated. So... That's what I found to be so fascinating is I got, had the full range of uh, categories on hurricane-related events. 
Okay. Let's go to uh, Mickey Lee. Mickey, um, what you know? Let, let's have you give a little uh, description of what you're finding with respect to this topic. Okay. Uh, thank you, Joe. The the uh, and I, uh, by the way, I appreciate you guys having me on, and and I really feel honored to be on with with with, with Ken. So, uh, uh, so this is a is a great topic, and uh, I, I appreciate this. Uh, the I would agree with Ken that there is uh, there's not an automatically one size fits all, and I've actually I actually believe that in the same building it is possible that you could have a category one on some upper floors or some areas of a bu- uh, of a building and possibly category three on the on the lower uh, in the lower floor especially if it's a basement or something of this of that nature. So, but understand, most of my work, in fact, no, I shouldn't say most, all of my work is commercial. And so most of what I have been uh, doing consulting on are very large uh, projects, either high-rise buildings, uh, multiple campus, uh, uh, or multiple uh, buildings on a, on a single campus that may be anywhere from four to uh, ten-story uh, buildings, uh, and things of that nature. So... Since I do all commercial, there's less of a there's less of a, a um, back and forth uh, between the adjuster or a TPA uh, and the and the restores. And so I'm seeing, of course, that's always been the case on commercial jobs. There's been less of that uh, oversight or less of the. Uh, 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 you know the adjuster literally breathing down your neck, yeah. because in uh, most cases we it's, it's very clear who our customer is, and our customer is not the insurance company. Our customer is the property manager or the owner of that building, um, and so that would be probably the biggest uh, difference that I'm I'm seeing. And so on uh, this year, uh, talk about what is unique or what is different than maybe previous ones. I'm seeing um, uh, more uh, multiple stakeholders on a project. Uh, in times past, generally, we would work and I would be reporting to a general contractor or directly to the project manager, I mean the uh, property manager. But now on a project, there may be multiple stakeholders where you have the general contractor, you have a remediation contractor that there that, that's working under the general contractor. They may have a drying equipment contractor who is just doing rental of, uh, of equipment. They may be, uh, uh, I'm saying, moisture mapping and documentation contractors. Uh, I've even uh, been working on one job where there is a joint venture between two large companies that traditionally would be uh, strong competitors with each other, but they came together uh, as a JV uh, to actually do uh, some of the work there. So I'm seeing a lot more construction consultants and uh, engineers and things of that nature. And uh, keeping all of the individual straight can be a real challenge. I'm, uh, some of the reports that I've been doing, uh, they go to five or six or seven or eight different people. And so there's multiple uh, individuals and contractors that I'm actually uh, not maybe directly reporting to. I mean, I've got one one client that pays for my uh, time, but I uh, am uh, copying multiple uh, people on many of the reports that I do. So. Uh, so that's a little bit different than what I've uh, 
seen in, in times past. There, uh, I think the owners of buildings and the property managers, they are very risk-averse, so they're trying to bring in uh, sufficient uh you know, specialized, specialized experts to do uh, different things like the drying equipment, the moisture mapping, uh, uh, remediation, and things of that nature. You know, you, you mentioned moisture mapping, and, and I want both of you to comment on this. I think most listeners know what we mean by moisture mapping, but I want both of you, if you would, to give listeners a couple tips about um, what you look for, you know, in, in your case, Mickey, you, there was you, you mentioned a part, uh, you know, a company coming in just doing the moisture mapping. What what do you look for, and what kind of tips would you give listeners on that topic? Uh, excellent question. Uh, summary stores, I'm 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 afraid, Joe, don't really know how to take uh, take and document good readings, uh, and in many cases, I think they're taking readings. Uh, and documenting them uh, just in order to get some numbers into a into a mobile app or into a, a job file. Uh, they're not necessarily using many of those numbers and many of those readings to actually manage the job. Uh, I learned something you know a long time ago from uh, Chuck Viola. Uh, one of his mantras has uh, has been for many many years that every number tells a story and every number begs a question. And I think it's the same way with our documentation or with our moisture readings. That if that, so it's those readings which tell me, which lets the building speak to me. I, I'm, I'm talking to the building through the readings, and as I take a reading, it, it's t- it should be telling me a story. And then secondly, not only does it tell me a story, it should beg a question, and that is, is that number good, or should it be better, or is it really bad? What's a and, red flag? Uh, so, what? I'm sorry, what's a red flag that shows you a number is bad? Uh, okay, I'll give you one example. I did a uh, file review on, uh, I, w- I actually was reviewing some documentation here not long ago, and on uh, day one, the uh, well, the, the goal, the drying goal was a 10, and on day one, the reading that they took was 100. On day two, it was 99. On day three, it was 98. On day four, it was 97. And on day five, it was 10. Hmm. So that tells me that uh, whoever was taking the readings were just putting in numbers just in order to fill out an app or just in order to fill out a, a sheet. And, this was and on- so I think that, that what we're doing oftentimes is we're taking numbers just to take numbers, but we're not really asking what does this tell me? How should this help me to manage my job? How should this help me to manage my equipment? Is that air mover still, is it pointing at a dry spot? If it is, it's a wasted air mover. I need to get that uh, moved. So I, um, I, I think sometimes we take a lot of non-value-added uh, numbers, uh, things that just really all it does is just uh, goes into a box. Let me dig down on that a little more, Mickey. So that those numbers you okay. gave me... I get the impression those were on a reference scale. They weren't a percent moisture content. Um, that is correct, yeah. Can, can you yep. talk to listeners a little bit about that? When you, as an expert, review someone's drying logs and they are indicating to you that they are drying drywall, concrete, etc., are you expecting that to be a reference number as opposed to a percent all the time, or will you accept the percent moisture content 
in drywall or some other um, surfaces other than or content uh, building products other than wood and um, do you expect them when they do that to change the way they label that in other words maybe you go to an equilibrium or wood equivalent or something like that um, just give list, listeners a few tips on that if you would okay uh the, the, the number one thing that is important is that, that a restorer has got to understand the meter. He's got to understand which scale to use, how to use the meter, whether he's reading actual moisture content by weight or whether he's reading a relative scale, and that relative scale may be from a 0 to a 100, or on some meters, like the protometers, it may be from 0 to 999. Uh, and then there's also some some scale some meters that you're going to be reading a wood moisture equivalent. And generally, when you're using a penetrating meter, uh, and you're using a penetrating meter on non-wood, because most penetrating meters are calibrated for wood, and so you can get a moisture content by weight out of that. But if you're using that uh, penetrating meter for a for drywall or for something else, then you're more than likely reading wood moisture equivalent. So they need to understand the different readings and uh, how they relate to each other. So no, I, I, I'm I'm okay reading. You know, if they if they say that uh, I'm reading a relative meter from zero to a hundred, that's okay. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm okay with uh, seeing uh, moisture content by weight uh, and okay with wood moisture equivalent, but restorers just, they have to understand, uh, you know, how to use their meter, which scale to use it on, uh, because with the different uh, meters, uh, you have different scales, and they should be used in different manners, um, and so, and one of the real, key, real important parts is they've got to read their documentation, mm-hmm. uh, and so if, if, if each meter manufacturer, they will put out uh, good uh, instructions, an operator's manual, and so they uh, they really need to understand what those uh, the the oper- what the manufacturer is suggesting uh, on how to use those meters. All right, thank you, Mickey. And then uh, Ken, would you like to add anything to that topic? Yeah, I do have a, a comment on this. the The original question was about a moisture map. Yes. And, you know, mapping by definition is a graphical representation of something. And I think too much emphasis on some programs is given to the action of drawing an artistic re- uh, uh, artist's rendition of where the water was in the building, which, of course, would be nothing but subjective and a guess as to how you reflect a three-dimensional issue on a two-dimensional surface you know, like a piece of paper. It's really a, a, a dynamic uh, view. So um, for me, I, I've, if you want to talk about a moisture map, personally, I am satisfied or I'm frequently satisfied with a uh, thermal image for the, an idea of where the water was in the building. And then, of course, that's verified with the technician's use with, of meters to verify that, in fact, those areas were wet. But that's sufficient for me. I've seen people with, you know, pencil crayons and, and different colors and, you know, rulers and all kinds of drafting gear to try and make this floor plan and then draw where they think the water was. I, I don't give a lot of uh, uh, 
you know, credibility to that. I, I will look at it out of fascination, but that's about as far as I go with that subject. As, as it relates to what Mickey was just talking about, the expression I like to use on non-wood materials is, it's a, I refer to it as, let's say, 50 points on a scale of 100. I refer to it as points, and when I, I'm pressed to explain what a point is, I, exp- I describe it as being nothing more than an index. It's not a percentage of the material's weight that's water. It's just an index, and that's all it is. Okay. Hey, by the way, I see a lot of people kind of dropping and coming back, and, and I know you did too, Ken, and I, I promise listeners we realize that's an issue. We are working on that, and I think we're going to have something uh, really good coming out the first of next year with our first show. Before we go to halftime, Cliff, any answers or anything you'd like to follow up on, or do you want to put out one more question before halftime? I'm good. All right, gentlemen, uh, let's break for halftime, and then when we come back with the second half, I want to talk a little bit more about scope of work, specifications, and and a little on oversight. So we'll be back with the second half of our interview with Ken Larson and Mickey Lee in about 90 seconds. Hang in there and thank our sponsors, please. IAQ Radio would like to thank our association sponsors. The Indoor Air Quality Association, a nonprofit multidisciplinary organization dedicated to promoting the exchange of indoor environmental information through education and research. Visit them at iaqa.org. Gray Wolf Sensing Solutions, who use advanced sensor software technology and embedded computers to provide superior environmental test instrumentation. Visit them, wolfsense.com. IAQ marquee sponsors are... John Don Products, where restoration and abatement contractors shop. Visit them at johndon.com. That's J-O-N-D-O-N.com. Healthy Indoor Magazine, a free online digital magazine for industry professionals and consumers. Subscriptions are available at iaq.net. Particles Plus, engineers and manufacturers feature rich particle counters, air quality monitoring, instrumentation, and vacuum pump technology. ParticlesPlus.com. Count on us. Let's get back with uh, Ken. Ken, you've, you've been working with uh, a lot of scope development. Tell, tell listeners, if you would, what, what the key components of, of a good scope of work are. Well, um, I think that uh, once you know what the, a, a task is that needs to be fulfilled, let's say it's a, uh, you need to dry a water-damaged building, the scope of work would be all the actions necessary to return the structure to a pre-loss condition. Basically, um, uh, the, uh, all the, the services that need to be fulfilled in order to complete the task of drying out that building. So it's where the job starts and where the job ends. And it's the general overview of all those activities necessary to fulfill the task. Can you give us a couple of quick examples? Oh, my goodness. Well, just something, you know, I'm not talking about it. All right, let me do this. How detailed are you on when the job ends? Um, or when the job ends, yeah. Correct. Well, okay, so where the, the job begins, I'd say you've got to stop the source of the water. Okay, that's where the job begins. Okay, so if you've got a breach in the roof, you're going to have to control that breach so that no more water comes into the building. And where it ends, 
is where is is the moment when the structure no longer possesses materials that are either contaminated or possess an excess level of moisture. Okay. So I, I would suggest that that might be the moment that you declare the task is complete. So all the actions that happen in between those two points would become the scope. Okay. Okay. And now let me ask you this. You're using ATP to determine in part, in part, and I think that's an important clarification, in part to determine the amount of contamination. Are you also using it at the end to determine whether or not that contamination has been removed? Well, yes. Um, in fact, that technology comes from the food preparation industry to determine uh, whether or not the food preparation services, surfaces, I should say, um, are uh, sufficiently sanitary to prepare food on them. So it's a great technology to determine if the surface is sanitary. It is not engineered to determine how unsanitary a surface is. So the fact that we're using it to determine, it, sorry, to partly determine category is a little bit of a stretch, and it's actually open for debate in certain circles. And it's a, a good, lively dialogue because it's not really quanti- good at quantifying what kind of biological load is there. We just know that it's high. Mm-hmm. And so is it good stuff or is it okay stuff? So it's, its use in categorizing water is... Uh, it's debate. It's debate right now. But on sanitizing and producing a sanitary condition, it's better when it's used in that fashion. Okay. Cliff, you have a follow-up? I, I do, Joe. Thanks. Uh, Ken, one of the things I just thought about, and you know, we were talking about category one water and category three water and, and so on and so forth. You've looked at a lot of these buildings. I'm wondering whether you're doing anything to determine the presence of salt water. Uh, you know, are you looking for corrosion? Are you seeing corrosion? Are you doing some sort of test on surfaces for you know, conductivity? Because I suspect salt water would be much more conductive than, uh, you know, fresh water. Just wondered what, how you're dealing with that. Yeah, so... Uh, that is not a particular uh, measure that I'm taking. And you've got to remember you know, that we are down here in South Florida, right on the Gulf of Mexico. Um, just normal storms that come through here carry with it all kinds of salt debris, and there's probably a, a history of an ongoing corrosion issue. We've opened up, well, not we, but the contractor has opened up walls and some of the units we're working on, and the steel studs are like unbelievably corroded i mean disintegrated and you know that's not necessarily something that happened in the last week right so um it's an ongoing environmental condition because of where we live in south florida Uh, i will say that one of the things i've noticed is that um where the uh, water has come into the building we're frequently noticing that there's almost a a wax-like substance carried in with the water it, it appears, even though the water has evaporated, there's this waxy, oily type of residue on the surface. And you go, what is that? Well, the actual uh, fact is that that's, you know, from the Gulf of Mexico. It's the salt water, and that's the residue it leaves behind. It's a, kind of an interesting observation. 
<laughs> but we're not really looking for corrosion as much, or at least we haven't been asked to at this point. Um, and that would probably require a, a completely different set of, you know, actions and, and tests to determine if the if the materials are corroded as a result of this specific hurricane. I, that would be a difficult question to answer. I just uh, just uh, as a feedback, uh, I have a condo in in Mexico. My wife and I. It's on the water. Uh, we had it for probably ten years before uh, we had hurricane damage. Hurricane Emily did a direct hit, uh, you know, on that building in in the town. You know, tremendous devastation. You know, it blew out a lot of windows. One thing that I can tell you, because I was involved with handling the claim and writing the estimate, is never before in that building was corrosion on bathroom fixtures, on uh, hinges, and you know, uh, so on and so forth. It was never ever an issue. And it became an issue after that hurricane. So, uh, just something to think about. Interesting, Mickey. I want That's you. Cool. To, uh, I'd like to have you, uh, if you would, and if 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 you have any experience with or use the ATP as a way of uh, confirming whether or not you've got some kind of contamination, and what your thoughts are. Uh, Joe, I don't have any real uh, strong opinion on the ATP testing. Uh, I, I know that it's uh, a lot of people are using it, uh, uh, you know, nowadays. And but I do recall, uh, I think you were at the Georgia Tech uh, conference a uh, year before last, mm-hmm. uh, the technical conference. Uh, were you not? Yes. Yes, uh-huh. and uh, we had you know two or, two or three different people there. One was a uh, ATP manufacturer, and a couple of others. And one of the things that kind of impressed me was that there seemed to be a, 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 a good degree of false positives and false negatives, and there there seemed to be some wide variances uh, between where they were coming down in terms of what is passable and what is not. And and some of the ranges. So I I came away from that conference saying, okay, well, I'm not sure that this is ready for prime time yet. What now you- that's been a year and a half down the road, and so perhaps we've come a a long way on that. But I have I have never used it. Uh, it's not to say that I would not uh, use it in the future. Uh, I'm just not. It's just not one of those things that's been in. Uh, the, the request that I have had from uh, from clients on that. Cool. I, I actually think, Joe, that you probably would have a whole lot better idea on, and uh, opinion on the ATP testing than what uh, what I would. What do you use, um, you know, in the past and now uh, as far as a clearance criteria? You know, when do you say, okay, Mr. Building Owner, I, Mickey Lee, have uh, reviewed what the Water restoration contractor has done, and I'm blessing this as back to uh, you know normal. Well, of course, my expertise, uh, Joe, is is primarily moisture, mm-hmm. and so I, I am not an I do not hold myself out as an IEP. I've had all of that training. I've you know uh, CMR and and AMRT and all of that. So I've I've had a lot of the training, but I'm just. It's one of those things that I don't feel really qualified in terms of my experience uh, to be able to do any type of a testing and clearance in that manner. What I will do is I'll, I'll clear it in terms of moisture levels and uh, in terms of uh, are we, you know, is the, pl- is the place clean? Have we done things according to the S500 and S520? Uh, as far as what I can tell, 
uh, in terms of uh, procedures, but uh, in in terms of the clearance uh, for uh, contamination, uh, I would uh, I, I, I do not do that. You know, I think that's such a great answer, Mickey, and, and I appreciate. I'm glad I asked because I think it's important. You know, a gentleman like you, you've been around for many years doing this type of work, and and yet you're saying, hey, you know, that's not my field of exp- expertise. And uh, I really appreciate that. You know, you determine the moisture is back, the area is clean, and you're not you're not uh, stepping outside. And I think that's important for people to recognize what is their area of expertise and to stick to that. Um, Ken, I want to go back to you for just a moment. Any other tips on determining when the project is over? And I'm I'm also wondering while you're talking about that, if you could go into a little more detail on how often you visit these projects. So do you just go in at the beginning, uh, write your scope of work, and then go back at the end, if you go back at the end? Or do you make multiple visits to check up on the progress of the project, make additional field calls as necessary, and then do your clearance? Well, so the answer to that is it depends. So um, it depends on the agreement and who we are working for. Uh, the, the most common scenario that we find ourselves in down here in South Florida is uh, we, are, we are working for the condo association. And so that association has asked us to identif- uh, categorize the water. So we are there as soon as we can get to the building, and we will conduct our tests and produce uh, a determination along with a somewhat generic protocol uh, on what to do on that uh, category of water. And uh, then uh, when the contractor says, okay, we think we're done, we, um, you know, we will come out to the job site and we will uh, do the walkthrough. And, uh, you know, it depends on the contractor, but it's surprising how many contractors uh, do not understand how clean it must be in order to successfully be declared uh, sanitary so that the drying process can begin. Uh, I am astounded to see how many places have footprints all over the place and gypsum dust everywhere and grit, you know, from whatever activities they were doing on the floors. I, that's just not going to pass. Okay. And so it takes uh, sometimes a few uh, uh, occasions where you have to inform the contractor, I guess inform is the best word to use, to tell them to clean it up better. And, um, and then, and not to rely so much on these juices that they may be inclined to spray in the building. It's amazing how many contractors think that, oh yeah, you just take your favorite, uh, antimicrobial, you spray it like crazy, even on the, the filth that's all over the place. And we will come in there and say that's sanitary. Uh, no, we won't. You gotta do a thorough cleaning and this disinfecting process is, uh, you know, a, a last step before any type of testing is done. So, again, it depends on, on the contract. You know, if, if the contractor wants us to guide them, then, yeah, we will, or a fee, you know, give them a more granular specification of what uh, actual steps to take in order to meet the criteria of being passed. Okay, that's fair enough. Let's, let's go to another topic I think is really a good one for our listeners. Um, Cliff had written a question, and I think it's a great one. What kind of special tools, other than the ATP, 
Um, are you guys using, are there any new or improved tools, um, techniques that you can pass along to listeners that in your field experience now have uh, stood up to the, the rigors of going in after hurricanes and uh, assessing damage initially and then determining when it's cleaned up? Start with you, Ken. Okay. Um, you know, there's, there's some really, um, uh, there's always uh, some new technology that seems to be emerging. And so for me, in doing these inspection things, I've, I've been really focusing on, um, you know, the quality of, uh, of my moisture meter kit. And to be honest with you, my, my moisture meter kit is the biggest Pelican case money can buy. And it's completely packed, and I can. Bear, I, I I don't know what I'm going to do. I, it seems like I got a, an addiction here. But um, <laughs> the uh, the meters that I have been uh, particularly impressed with this year is the brand new FLIR One camera that you plug into your iPhone. Now you're either going to love that thing, or you're going to be a snob and roll your eyes and say my thirty thousand dollar FLIR is better than yours. And there's there's truth to that. But the fact that it plugs into my phone and I can take quick photographs and it's uh, a very high-quality thermal imaging camera for its size, I'm blown away by that little thing. And I use it all the time. Uh, that FLIR 1, ca- FLIR 1 Pro. Don't, uh, the FLIR 1 has just been upgraded to the FLIR 1 Pro and that it makes all the difference in the world. So that as well as my laser particle counter. I'm finding that my laser particle counter is answering a lot of questions that I wasn't able to answer before. Um, And I'd really rather not get into all the details of that because that's a complicated subject, but laser particle counters are cool. They're they're valuable, especially in evaluating the performance of your air scrubbers. I'm astounded at how many air scrubbers are being installed on jobs when they're not performing according to the specifications they're supposed to. It's a huge wake-up call for restorers who install air scrubbers and think that they're doing their job. My laser particle counter begs to differ. And uh, I think it's a good quality control device to make sure that the customer is getting the full value of what they're paying for. All right. Mickey, anything you'd add on that topic? Yeah, there's probably a couple of things. Uh, 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 Joe, I uh, I totally agree on the uh, with, with what Ken just said about the FLIR One uh, Pro, the third generation of that. I just uh, got uh, got one in here a couple of months ago, or a month and a half or so ago, and that is a dynamite uh, tool. Uh, I, I've got a I've got an infrared camera that is ten times that was ten times that expensive, and uh, the one that I really can throw in my pocket, and I'm always got my phone with me, of course. But uh, that little FLIR One Pro is is a for for, for, for I'd say for ninety percent of what we most of us restorers do uh, that uh, that item is going to be a, a really a good go to uh, uh, piece uh, piece of equipment. Uh, secondly, uh, I uh, got, have a complete set of the. Uh, and I'm, I'm kind of like Ken. I've got the, uh, the you know, I, I've got a huge, actually, I've got two Pelican cases, Ken. Uh, <laughs> oh, both of man. Them are, uh, kind of medium, medium size, and so I carry some of, sometimes I carry both of them, but most of the time I get it down to one. But here recently, uh, Tramex has come out with a, with a complete kit that uh, has not only that, uh, the old go-to moisture encounter uh, meter, 
but they've also got the uh, CMEX2, which is a uh, concrete uh, meter and a lot of other uh, items in that. That's been my, you know, that's the first uh, set that I pick up uh, nowadays. I'll, I'll, if, I, if I can't take anything else with me, I'm going to take that and my FLIR 1 Pro uh, with me. The other th- the third thing, uh, and, and this is going to blow you away because you never would even have thought of this, and that is I am using my iPad and FaceTime for more consulting jobs than I can than you could shake a stick at. Yeah. Uh, just in the last uh, two two months or so, I've probably spent thirty to fifty hours of FaceTime with different contractors and restorers from Houston to Florida. And so basically, we hop on a FaceTime, and I say, "Okay, well, show me what that construction is. Let's zoom in there, get in there close." And I'm able to say, okay, what about this? What about that? And so I'm doing consulting on, you know, you can use it on Skype. You can use it on FaceTime and iPad. And uh, tell you what, that has been a dynamite uh, uh, system to help me to uh, uh, lower cost uh, for, the, uh, uh, for, the, uh, for my restore, for my client, and actually literally be on site in, uh, in, some, in a sense. Uh, to look at construction and look at uh, what they're actually seeing on the on the job site. So it's uh, I've looked and uh, helped them to categorize uh, water by just walking around, uh, showing me what they're what they're seeing on their uh, on their uh, you know in in the building. So uh, FaceTime has been a has, has been a very interesting uh, tool for me. I got a, a quick follow up on that. Uh, you know, we, we run into situations. I'm, I'm thinking of one in particular, but there are many. Uh, in this case, we've got eight inch round metal duct, duct work under a slab. And I'm wondering if you guys have any tools that can help with the visual inspection of that slab. You know, it may go 25, 30 feet. Um, you know, you can get a camera down in there. You can put a, a you know, a boroscope in maybe six feet or so, maybe maybe a little longer. I'm not sure that I have access to something like that. But any thoughts on, you know, or maybe you have a wall cavity and you have an opening at the top and you'd like to drop something down in there to get a, a photo or video. Any comments on that? Any uh, thoughts? Joe, I'm not familiar with a tool that would, uh, I mean, that's it's a great idea. Somebody ought to come up with something like that. In fact, they probably have. Uh, boroscope would be the, uh, about the, the, the only thing that I could suggest outside of those uh, mobile uh, cameras uh, that you can send into ductwork and pipes and things of that nature. But uh, uh, I, don't, I don't have any other thing that I, I could recommend on that. I'd love to see a small you know, like the duct cleaners use, I'd like to see a little one that, uh, you know, the ones I've seen have typically been, oh, you know, like a Tonka truck almost, a little too big for what I have in yeah, mind. Yeah. Uh, Ken, have you got any suggestions on that? Uh, well, actually, I, so I have several boroscopes, um, some of them that integrate via Bluetooth to my cell phone. Mm-hmm. So it actually doesn't plug into your cell phone. It's a Bluetooth connection, and you can take photographs from this um, uh, boroscope that has a 10-foot cable. So um, I find that to be a value for the scenarios you described. Um, I do believe there is technology out there that's like a little tractor that could fit into that 8-inch duct, and you can just kind of drive it around. 
the problem is that if it if there's an elbow and it goes down, <laughs> you're not going to get your tractor back. I want my tractor so, um, back. And by uh, the way, I'm going to yeah. start a uh, I'm going to start moisture meters anonymous for you two guys, and then uh, <laughs> I may join myself. I've probably got about eight of them myself. But hey, Cliff, before I'm just running, all upset that Mickey has a big one and a small one. I got to get another case now. <laughs> <laughs> uh, why don't we go to the roundup, uh, John? Let's go to the roundup, buddy. Move him on, hit him up, hit him up, move him on, move him on, hit him up, raw high. All right, let's get the let's say hello to the Restoration Industries Global Watchdog Pete Consigli. Pete, do we still have you on the Oh, there we go. Get Pete on the line there. Pete, are you available? Yeah, how you doing, guys? Can you hear me okay, Joe? Yeah, you sound great, Pete. Uh, any comments, questions for the guys? Yeah, well, I, I have a couple of comments I want to make. Uh, I think it was great dialogue going back and forth, a lot of useful information. Uh, so just a couple of quick comments, and then I, I actually have a question for the guys and a couple of comments, I think, maybe to kind of close this interview out and, and lay the groundwork for the post-holiday stuff uh, on this hurricane coverage you guys have been doing, which I think has been great. The, the one thing I want to comment on this on the ATP discussion is, remember, when ATP first was being used in our industry, it was the mid to late 90s, and it primarily was being used for uh, to try to... Uh, kind of get a handle on the efficacy of doing cleanup after sewage backups. Um, you know, kind of dovetailing off of the surface, uh, you know, the sanitary nature of a surface from the from the food, the food prep industry, which is where it came from, what was discussed. I think that it's um, probably turned into kind of a one-size-fits-all technology for the industry. And uh, so, I don't know, it's still probably a pretty contentious topic you got the pros and cons, uh, you know, and the use of it. Um, the other thing that I found very interesting is the comment that Cliff brought up about the, oxid, the oxidation or the rusting on um, the internal metal components in his condo down there uh, after Hurricane Emily. I don't think I ever actually heard Cliff, at least that I can recall, comment on that. And that kind of s- struck me that the... Um, that uh, that's a very interesting point because, you know, I think that uh, in these hot, humid climates, we, you know, it's usually taken for granted that there's always going to be some kind of musty, moldy smell, high humidity, moisture in the air, and that, you know, kind of rust and corrosion is just kind of the norm. But the fact that in that scenario, it, there was no presence before the hurricane, but there was afterwards, I think is something that's very interesting and usually pay attention to. I suggest a clip that he actually notes that in his blog. Usually some of his comments, he may not put him down, but I actually think it's a pretty important point that probably should be considered in the future. Now, you know, Ralph Moon has presented research in the past, I think on prior shows and at some of the events, even the Healthy Building Summit a couple of years ago, Joe, if you recall, on research that he's been doing that deals with corrosion on the internal components. And what Ken comments and a lot of the work that he's doing they're finding that just as a kind of the standard course, uh, you know, in these uh, in these hot, humid climates. So we may be able, Ralph may be able to shed a little bit more on that topic in the in a future interview. Um, so I, I think that this show has kind of laid a good groundwork for the the, the the final show maybe on this entire hurricane 
coverage that is going to have Ralph and Mike Bowden scheduled sometime after the first of the year that deals with um, the kinds of stuff that uh, Ralph is finding uh, on these hurricanes that he's being called in as a kind of a post-hurricane consultant. takes a little bit of time, and I think Mike will also looking at some of the legal aspects. Uh, something that we're starting to see is a lot of the lawyers are kind of starting to enter the fray. There's articles in the magazines and in some of the media in the industry on uh, the need for, you know, proper contracts and, uh, um, you know, the different regulations in these different states and counties where they're working. So I think it will be interesting uh, to find out um, what kind of, you know, three, four months kind of after the hit of the hurricanes everything going on. Uh, what's going on in that regard. So for whatever that's worth, I think it's uh, probably going to be a good setup uh, uh, for that show. Now, um, so here, here's uh, my question that I have for the guys. It's kind of a two-pronged question for both Mickey and Ken. And this was something that I know when we set this show up, I thought um, was an important component uh, to address was how is the, work, the inspection and the work that these guys are doing, how, how is it working out there in a practical sense when the doing these inspections, writing these scopes, and they're referencing either the S-500 or the S-520. And, um, and what I mean by that is that the, um, uh, you know, who, who's paying for the services? I mean, ultimately. You know, Mickey talks about they're the commercial clients, and his client is either, in many cases, going to be the contractor or the store. In Ken's case, it's they're, they're the homeowners associations or the property owners. But at what point does the insurance companies get involved? Do, do they, you know, either accept or resist um, these inspections as part of something that ultimately is, is going to be passed on to them? And the contractors or the property owners that are paying for them, are they absorbing this cost as part of doing business, or are they trying to pass those costs on to an insurance company? Um, you know, how is all that kind of kind of working in there? And I think to be a... Uh, be good to have both of them kind of comment on that in whatever way they feel comfortable without, you know, giving any, you know, any kind of confidential proprietary information and dealing with their clients. And uh, the one last comment that I have is I, I thought that Mickey's comment on the FaceTime was interesting, that um, that's starting to get to be an important part of doing consulting where you don't actually have to be on site. And the one thing that I would uh, maybe remind the listeners, in most of these programs that uh, have been evolving with the TPAs over the last few years, most of those programs are using FaceTime or some equivalent technology with the, the contractors or approved vendors in order to facilitate the developing the scope and approval of the process and to documenting the law. So I think that's a technology which, quite frankly, is uh, going to be here to stay, I think, in the future um, in dealing with these losses, uh, you know, uh, in one capacity or another. So anyway, Absolutely. Um, I thought that guys so i'll pass it back to you John. all right thank you pete we're going to mute you we're getting a little bit of feedback there but uh ken i noticed you dropped off and came back let's go to mickey first mickey any uh feedback for pete on his questions well uh, it was uh, he broke up a little bit and I, I think he asked who pays for the services is one of the questions that he well, had i think it was kind uh, of like and uh so uh, that was one, correct? Yes, but in yeah. relation to yeah. um, using the S-500 and S-520 to recommend certain services, are you getting okay. pushback from those who pay? 
Uh, actually, I am not not in the commercial uh, not in the commercial work that I, that I'm doing. Uh, basically, they are asking me uh, and a couple of the the clients that I've been that I've used and or that's working with me right now. They said, Mickey, tell us, are we doing everything uh, right? Are we doing things according to the uh, to the uh, standard of care? And so I'm, you know, providing them documentation, and, and, and that's one of the big questions that I have. Okay, have you done this? And I'm looking for, uh, or have we uh, done what we need to do to prevent cross-contamination and with pressure differentials and engineering controls and all of that? So, so I'm looking at those things for them to help reduce their, their, their risk. And I am not hearing any pushback on that. And... Uh, uh, in terms of, uh, you know, uh, whoever's going to pay for it. I, of course, you know, I, I contract directly uh, with the uh, general contractor. or uh, And uh, so where, you know, whether it's the insurance company or FEMA or whoever winds up paying for it, that's that's up to them. Okay. But, uh, uh, so, yeah, I'm not getting any, any, any pushback on uh, uh, compliance with the S-500. One of the things, though, that, I, that, that if I could would, would just like to sort of throw this out is I think in in too many of the residential situations that the S five hundred is being badly applied on jobs, and the problem is that it's being interpreted on jobs by either TPAs uh, or an adjuster or the mobile apps, and I think in many ways they're actually uh, interpreting the S five hundred badly. So I've taken a look at several of the mobile apps out there, the, the three biggies, and I won't name them, but I, but all of them claim to be based on the S500, all of their direction and calculations and all of that, and I look at it and I say, they don't understand the S500. Hmm. And so I think that it behooves the restorers to understand the S500, and when they know that something is not being uh, interpreted correctly that they push back from a technical standpoint and be able to quote book, chapter, and verse, so to speak, and say, this is what I'm doing and this is why I'm doing it. So I'd like to see restorers understand that S-500 a lot better than what they, they probably do at this point. Well, maybe next year we could get you two gentlemen, and I know, Mickey, you were the chair, I believe, on that one. We'd love to get you back and, and discuss what you're seeing with respect to that topic and uh, go into a little more detail for listeners. I would be open to that, Joe, sure. Sounds good. All right, let's go to Ken. Ken, um, I'm, I know you dropped off for a moment there, and I don't know whether you were able to hear Pete's question, but uh, if you did, what kind of uh, feedback do you have for Pete and the listeners? Yes. Before I go on to that, I want to just go on record as saying I don't uh, only owe uh, um, uh, Mickey a beer for that last comment. I owe him a case of beer. You have no <laughs> idea how much in alignment we are on that subject of these three primary software programs that misinterpret and incompetently demand um uh, actions that are completely not in compliance with the S-500. That is one of our industry's biggest issues. And I think that what, uh, what, if the, the program work demands that those programs be used, I think that the contractor should very seriously consider their participation in that program if the software programs that they say have to be used uh, 
produce a, 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 an end result that is substandard. And I think that's a, an important question that each contractor has to weigh. Um, all right, let's, uh, as it relates to pushback on compliance with the S500 and 520, I am finding very little pushback. Most everybody is saying, please help us comply with that. And, of course, thrilled to do that because it makes things so much easier and clearer. With one exception, I am doing one job where there is a retired engineer who just wants to fight and sue people. And so even though we're, we're doing everything that we can to be in compliance with the industry standard, he doesn't believe that the standard is correct and he wants to sue. So the contractor finds himself in a really weird position. If he doesn't do it the right way, according to the standard, or you know, a standard job or competently, he's going to get sued. But then again, if he does follow it, he's still going to get sued. So what does he do? You know, the answer is, I, I, the lesson on this is that even when you do everything absolutely correctly, you can still get sued, and there's a lesson there. So you've got to be ready, and you've got to definitely document your processes in preparation for those retired engineers who have nothing better to do. <laughs> well, thank you. Ken, um, gentlemen, before we go, uh, Cliff, any final questions? Uh, just a suggestion, Joe, on the, the cameras and the 8-inch round ductwork. Yep. Uh, they make duct brushes that are on poles, and the poles bend. And actually, the brush at the end uh, holds you know, its circular shape, and it's slightly bigger than 8 inches. So it centers the brush into the, uh, into the front. And a lot of times, they'll have a wheel or something on this that will help it get around the corner. It would seem to me that if they mounted a GoPro somewhere, because mm -hmm. they're durable, they're not that expensive, okay. it would seem to me that if they mounted a GoPro uh, you know, on that pole, that you would get what you wanted. Interesting. All right, that's helpful. And um, before we go, gentlemen, it's been great. Um, I really appreciate having both of you join us again, and Really enjoyed the show. Any final comments, final thoughts before we wrap it up? Let's start with you, Ken. I just look forward to coming to the next show, Joe. It's always great to be with you and Cliff. And uh, I find that uh, I think these radio shows are of extreme value, especially as a, an archive. Uh, we've got so many uh, notorious individuals as part of your guest list. And uh, <laughs> it's nice to be able to go back in time and, and review these. Thanks for having us on the show. Thank you, Ken. And Mickey Lee, before we go, any final thoughts? You know, I, I also I really appreciate uh, the opportunity for this, and I think there's a lot of, of, of things that restores uh, need to, to, to bone up on, and not only the S500, but why they're doing what they're doing, and be able to, dock, to back up technically why they're doing what they're doing. And uh, so I... Uh, uh, I, ju I just appreciate this, uh, the, 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 the IQ radio shows. Uh, I've listened to a number of them, and I really do uh, appreciate what you guys are doing. Well, gentlemen, thank you both for joining us today. Uh, my, my, my thanks go out again to Ken Larson and Mickey Lee. Of course, to my co-host, the Z-Man, Cliff Zlotnick. Of course, uh, the Restoration Industries Global Watchdog, Pete Consigli. Thanks for helping us get this one set up. And we look forward to the, uh, the last one uh, with Ralph and Mike um, early next year. We'll get those two on to 
to finish up our hurricane coverage here. Uh, at the controls, John, you got to have faith. Thanks again to you. And most importantly, our growing group of loyal listeners. We'll be back. Um, we're going to take a little break for the holidays, and then we're going to come back stronger than ever next year. We've got some really interesting new um, ways of doing the show coming out early next year. So uh, we look forward to all of our growing group of loyal listeners. Enjoy the holidays, and we'll see you back here in January on IAQ Radio. For IAQ Radio, I'm Spike Reel saying thanks for listening.